Good morning. The opening words this morning are from Beth Nielsen Chapman's album, Prison. Her song is called The Flame. O come ye now unto the flame, keep it through the night, shelter and embrace its warmth and spend its precious light. The darkness makes us all afraid, but we are not alone. The beacon of our common love will guide our journey home. May our journeys home today and at our ends be guided by kindness and accompanied with a sustaining love that never leaves us. I'm so glad to be back here among all of you, my fellow Unitarians across the water, old and new friends and beloved colleagues. 
We are closer to the end today in all sorts of ways, certainly closer than when we gathered here last Saturday evening for the first time to begin the 2018 summer school in the heart of the Peak District. What a privilege, even through sickness and water shortages and our own grumblings, to have had this holiday, to have had these holy days set aside for reflection and companionship. So come you now into the flame and know that you are not alone. I am really pleased to have the kids here. Oh, I forgot my microphone. There we go. All right. Did you notice this when you came in? Maybe you didn't because it was kind of like an adult thing. (laughs) Do you notice anything about this vase of flowers? Is there anything a little bit strange about it or different? What's that? What do you think? certainly old, they're in the last stages, right? Even these that are a little greener are, uh, have some berries, which means they're, they're right near the end. And the reason I wanted to talk about it, you know that we've been talking about <clears throat> death and dying, which seems sort of grim sometimes, but you guys are young and it seems very far away. So I was thinking, what could I say to you guys about um, maybe growing older? Because that's something you're all doing, right? We're all growing older. It's something we all do. <laughs> And I also thought, we often think of things that are beautiful as being young. You guys are clearly gorgeous. But I don't think a lot of times we see older people, and for you guys there are a lot of people who are older than you, as being necessarily beautiful. So I tried to find and put together some things just from around here. I just went around outside. Things that even though they're, they're getting old, they're near their end, or they're even done, like this one. They're, they're actually, there's something quite beautiful about it. And this is something you could even do at your house, couldn't you? Because you don't have to get permission to sort of cut off something that's sort of dead. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> um, and I also wanted to say, you know, we, we have a lot of messages in the world, especially, do any of you get on the internet? Do you ever watch something on YouTube, maybe, or you see videos, or on phones? I'm sure you do. And do you know what? A lot of those pictures to sell you things, even toys, are of young people and of people who are in the prime of their life. Like this was full of all the newest flowers. And so you see, I was just looking through a paper that I picked up in the, in the sunroom, like to sell you, to sell me if I wanted to buy a suit. You usually don't have older people in suits. They have younger people because they think somehow they're more beautiful. And it's a certain kind of beauty, right? And as you get older, they try to sell you makeup or they try to sell you cars. It will often be with younger, beautiful people. But I have, I know there's only one day left in tomorrow breakfast, you don't have a lot of time, but I have a little task for you. I wonder if you'd be willing just to look around and notice the beauty of older people and older things, right? That might be someone like me. (laughs) But it might be someone like your grandma or grandpa or just anyone here, even people you've never talked to. 
But just look a little bit, maybe when they're not looking at you, maybe at lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just notice that there's a real beauty, like in this vase of flowers, right? This kind of looks cool, I think. I think it's beautiful. But it's not made up of young beauty. It's an older beauty. And we forget that sometimes, that to be young can be beautiful, but also to be old, even dead. Isn't that weird? Even dead can be beautiful. And I think that's one of the lessons from this week. So that's your, that's something you might want to do a little bit, is notice older beauty. You think you can do that without being too embarrassed? <laughs> I would do it like this, like, like just look sideways. <laughs> All right. Will you guys sing our last hymn, one last hymn with us, and then we'll let you go off to your activities? Thank you, you were great. I'm gonna put this back up. All right, let's sing in the morning before the kids go. We're going to sing in the purple hymnal. It's number 88. Let it be a dance we do. Why don't we rise as we're willing and able and sing this. 88.
Thanks, kids. Before this week's summer school theme was announced, it had occurred to me in my ministry of 19 years now that nearly every sermon I had ever given, or really any that I'd ever heard, had been a kind of sideways meditation on our mortal condition, a quest to try and describe what the blazes we are meant to do with our one wild, precious life, as poet Mary Oliver Sheena, Michael, and now myself have put it. Whether it be a sermon about climate justice, the complicated meetings behind Mother's Day, or even the spiritual practice of giving money towards the mission of a cause or a congregation, each one of them touches explicitly or implicitly the fact that none of us is here very long, and neither are the other beings around us. The message is really the same. Better to reflect wisely and deeply, or if you can't manage wise and deep, at least honestly, on what we are to do with our time here together. Because the fact is, if we've never stopped to mull over the mysteries and realities of death, we risk doing the opposite of staying distracted, flailing about as fast as we can in the hope or expectation that, what? The questions raised by dying don't matter? We will live forever? I realize that I'm not the only one, of course, who's thought that sermons are often mirrors on the stark fact that none of this goes on forever. Socrates is reported to have said, Ordinary people seem not to realize that those who really apply themselves in the right way to philosophy are directly and of their own accord preparing themselves for dying and death. And what is a sermon? What is this religious impulse we have to gather around a flame or to go on pilgrimage if not philosophy made flesh? So this next hour should be easy, as it turns out that I and most of us here actually have been practicing our own mortality for some years now, not to mention every single solitary day here at summer school. I also think it's safe to say that all of us have been working quite hard this week. We've tried not to look away from death. We've tried not to flail quite as much. We've really sat with the truth of our mortality, our own and others of crossings and thresholds and storytelling and simply being with dying, which is finally to say, of course, simply going on living too. Here's another truth, and it's not simply a product of all that internal effort, 
not to mention the intestinal work or child care that some of us have been doing as well. We're all probably a bit tired. Or maybe you're not. Maybe you're one of those more extroverted people or got so much of what you needed that you're buzzing right now. That's totally great. For me, however, by the end of a week at Hucklow, no matter the topic, I am worn out. My introverted, introverted self has fully emerged, and whatever the theme, I'm really ready to turn off my brain, watch some seriously bad television, and eat a half pint of locale ice cream on the couch. Locale because, of course, despite all this wisdom, all that I've learned, I'm still trying bloody hard to stave off ill health and an early death. We're funny creatures, aren't we? And still, we're not quite there yet. Though it's nearly the end of our time together, we are not quite done with death, literally or metaphorically. So I'm going to ask for your patience and the stamina to sit through a final hour-long exploration of this theme, the subject of this twilight hour of summer school and of the twilight hour of life. A few more things to ponder before we plunge back into our full-time jobs of living. To help make things a little more organized, I've broken my talk into three parts, with two breaks for singing in between. Part one is a personal set of stories that touch on mortality, including some thoughts following a truly remarkable drag show I saw last month on a holiday as well as from a year I spent working full-time as a chaplain at an assisted living facility for people living with dementia. In part two, you might experience a little homiletic whiplash as we move from drag shows to two poems by a 17th century Puritan poet. <laughs> this will be a chance to think together about what has changed, but also what has remained the same in our liberal religious understandings of death and dying. Finally, I'll wrap up the whole strange package with some final thoughts from Sally Tisdale's excellent book, which I highly recommend, Advice for Future Corpses <laughs> and Those Who Love Them, A Practical Perspective on Death and Dying. And we will see where, if anywhere, we might have arrived together at the end of this pilgrimage. Because don't be mistaken, we have just as surely walked together for a week towards a common shrine as if we were Holy Week participants on the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem, or high in the Pyrenees headed towards the bones of James in Santiago de Compostela. We can just about see the city from where we are today, the final station of the cross the last overnight hostel before suddenly we will have arrived, ready or not. There's a reason for our common weariness, our mounting sense of expectation, and maybe also that final very human question, is this it? Maybe it is. Hang in there, because we're nearly there. So in my first part, I'd like to start off on a lighter note, because let's face it, sometimes mortality and the meanings that we attach to it are weird and funny in every sense of the word funny. 
And we also need to laugh in the face of death. It's not a terrible way to cope. There are many worse ways. Death itself can be funny, of course. Comedians have known this forever. Think about humor of the gallows. I think here of the terrible outfit and rather too much makeup applied by the undertaker to my grandmother, who wouldn't have been seen leaving the house in either one. Death and dying, or rather what happens to us once we've died, was the main theme of this really spectacular drag show I saw last month while on vacation in the gay mecca of Provincetown at the very end of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. The title of the performance was Inferno a Gogo, <laughs> which I thought of making the title of this talk but knew I couldn't ever live up to it. <laughs> Inferno a Gogo follows the performer Ben de la Creme in various fantastic outfit changes, of course, through Dante's description of the nine circles of hell. Because, as the performer herself put it at the beginning of the evening, who doesn't want to see a drag show based on 14th century Italian literature? <laughs> as you can imagine, for any of you who have ever attended or watched on TV a more professional drag routine, or maybe just seen Dame Edna or watched a panto, there was plenty to laugh at. Take the demon guarding his prisoners wearing a baseball cap that read, Make Hell Great Again. <laughs> Good, so that mostly works here? I wasn't sure. <laughs> or my favorite bit, I wish I could capture it. The blonde 1980s era valley girl inflective messenger of God who takes a special trip down from heaven to sort of help the tourist, this drag performer, through the nine circles. And while flicking her golden curls and thing, saying things like, oh my God, and looking at her awfully long red nails, she says things that, like, heretics definitely belong in hell because, like, it's heresy, right? They're heretics, right? So for sure they can't be in heaven. No way. And when Ben de la Creme in her 1950s era Tropicana touring hot pants questions this logic, reminding God's messenger, but doesn't the word heretic really just mean someone with an opinion different than your own? And isn't disagreement sometimes a good thing? God's blonde messenger rolls her eyes and says, oh my God, no. It's just heresy. Look it up. So the show goes on in this vein, weaving some fairly pointed political critiques in amongst the go-go dancing and the teased big hair as the performer took us down through each of the nine circles of hell. And I hadn't ever read Dante, so I didn't, you know, the glutton had his own and the gossip and the fornicator. It gets into some real detail. <laughs> then something very special and very strange and quite church-like actually happened. In one of the inner rings of the ninth circle, just before our tourist reaches Satan himself, Ben de la Creme happens upon one of Dante's harpies, a guardian or a demon or both, sitting on a branch in the midst of a quiet glade of big green trees. It's an oddly peaceful scene. It was on green screen behind. 
given that we had just been serenaded by demonic Diana Ross and her two siren backup singers in the previous circle. Suddenly the stage was transformed and all went quiet. When Ben de la Creme asks the harpy who is consigned to this ring of hell, the creature says simply, the suicides. Though they haven't done anything really, the harpy goes on, their lives simply became more than they could bear. And that couldn't have been an easy thing to live with, could it? They each became a tree and here they stay. And when the performer asked why suicides are sent to Dante's hell, the harpy simply shakes her head and says, I have no idea. Those are just the rules. But I'll tell you this, the rules are made by those in power, but it doesn't mean they are good rules. So for now, until things change, I will guard their peace here in this forest until better times come. I wish I could describe adequately in words the hush that descended on the audience at this point of the show. We weren't expecting it at all, but we had been led right there by this over-the-top drag queen in a cherry red blouse, big 1960s sunglasses, now suddenly so quiet, so moved by this journey from pastiche right to suicide. And we were forced to ask ourselves, why does the idea of hell exist anyway? Who decided what it was and who gets sent there? And how could any of that ever have been okay? And just like a good minister, having taken us to this very deep, very solemn place, she brought us gently back, back to the land of the living and out of hell, or what we have inherited as the story of hell. And at the end of the evening, we remembered the jokes, of course, and the outfits, but in truth, we all walked out of that show a little shaken, or maybe a little awakened. All because a man in a wig in a resort town show had reminded us how really we make our own hells, don't we? And that if we make them, we can also unmake them. We can expose them as the bad actors and the overweening inner thoughts, the parrot, we have somehow allowed to have power over us. Actually, there's so much to take in about the process of dying that it's a wonder we have any time left to think about what happens after we die. There are mysteries enough in the journey up to that moment. There are many different ways to die, of course. Not all of them are obvious. The obvious ones we know, clogged arteries, cancers, genetic flaws, accidents so numerous we can't even imagine them all. Pneumonia is popular among those in hospital or hospice, especially among the very old or the very ill. Interestingly, there are far more ways of dying than of being born. One of the less normal ways of dying is when one gets a diagnosis of dementia. 
By less normal, I obviously don't mean less common. It's becoming more and more common, of course. It's just that most people don't physically die because of dementia. Many go on to live years and years in ironic, good physical health. It depends on what your definition of what it means to be alive is. If you start forgetting how to swallow, is that still alive? It will depend on you, of course. For me, I don't think I would want to stay living if that's what it came down to. But ask me when it actually happens. Our desire to live, it turns out, can be exceptionally strong. My first job only a month out of graduation from Divinity School was in a pilot project serving as the first full-time interfaith chaplain at an assisted living center called the Boston Alzheimer's Center. It was a state-of-the-art facility during that time. In fact, one of the great things they worked out is that there was a little wall around the door to the locked unit. Most people lived on the locked unit. So that it was like an alcove, and you left and exited with a code. When you worked there, you were visiting. And what that did is it didn't always have folks who couldn't remember why they were there see people come in and out when they couldn't. So it gave a measure of comfort. You know, there was sort of a sense of, well, we just live here. When I stepped through those locked doors at what the ripe old age of 29, I was almost literally stepping across the threshold from the land of the living to the land of the in-between. It was like many dementia units, especially those that house medium and long-term Alzheimer's sufferers, a space where living and a slow, heartbreakingly confused dying coexist in a predictably unpredictable dance. Two short stories from that time that illuminates both what's funny in all senses of the word about our mortal frailties and how it doesn't take much, does it, to tip us over from the great I am mortal and will die someday amnesia most of us seem to have or that we need maybe to go on with life. And the sudden realization that we too, me, this body, I know so well, even the bits I don't like, all of it is destined for the recycle bin. I started visiting one elderly African-American woman during my rounds on the unit, who I will have to call Phyllis because I have a truly terrible memory too. <laughs> but more on that in a moment. So I would often find Phyllis in her room, sitting alone on her bed, peering out into the hallway through these plate glass, super thick specks, looking for all the world like a shrunken, solemn owl. She would sit like that for hours, waiting for something, maybe to make sense of what was happening, or maybe something else. We struck up a kind of funny friendship. Interestingly, she knew, she remembered I was a pastor when I visited, which always struck me. Hello, pastor, she would say, and I would come in and sit down beside her on the side of her bed in her small room. I got to know her adult son fairly well, too, and whenever we ran into each other in the hallway during his visits to his mother, we would stop and chat. One day, Phyllis's son stopped me in the hallway with a big smile on his face. I've just been talking with my mom, he said. She mentioned you. 
really? I said, I hadn't seen her that day. It's kind of extraordinary that she'd remember something that had happened the day before. Well, she remembers you, he said, smiling. She told me, you know, the funniest thing has been happening. I'm at home, sitting on the front porch swing the way I do, and this white preacher keeps coming around to say hello. I have no idea what he wants. He just keeps coming by and sits with me on the swing. He was laughing by now, and so was I. She said you were nice enough, but it confuses the hell out of her why some white dude would swing by her house all the time. I had an even more personal moment that I can only describe as a bout of sympathetic illness. That's the kind, of course, that if you're working on an oncology unit or you've got a friend going through, it often seems to happen with cancer. Suddenly you notice lumps you hadn't felt before or bruises or aches. So you remember, of course, the terrible memory that I have. For the life of me, I couldn't ever remember parishioners' names or all kinds of other useful things like how to perform CPR, even though I've looked at my wallet, that thing in my wallet, a million times. Can't remember how many compressions to make. And at this Alzheimer's Center, there was a hard scrabble, no-nonsense, classic South Boston head nurse, Anne. She was a take-no-prisoners, I've-seen-it-all kind of person, the kind who delight in taking young Mormon missionary-looking chaplains <laughs> down a peg or two. Finally, we got along all right. I was properly deferential. I may have a bad memory, but I'm nobody's fool. But it took a fair amount of courage for me finally to go up to Anne one day and say, I know, I know you're totally going to think I'm insane and stupid, but I have something I have to ask you. Ask what, Anne said. She was always busy the way nurses are, filling up pillboxes, filling out a chart. So she wasn't really listening. So I think maybe I have really early stage Alzheimer's. <laughs> Honestly, I forget everything all the time. Appointments, people I meant to call back, that I owed Helen upstairs a report yesterday, I totally forgot. I forget, it seems like everything. So really, I'm wondering, and I know I'm young, could I be in like the super early onset stages of dementia? You remember I was 29. <laughs> to her credit, Anne didn't just laugh or tell me to shove off, actually. She gave me a piece of advice that has brought me peace of mind to this very day, and I pass it now on to you. Here's how you know whether you have early onset Alzheimer's. Are you ready? She said. Yes, relieved but suddenly scared, like what if this test would confirm, like what am I asking here? So it's not whether or not you can find your car keys. Everybody loses their car keys. Do you know if you own a car? Yes, I said, I know that I own a car. Then you don't have early onset Alzheimer's. I found it amazingly comforting. We are always in some stage of dying, but the early stages can be fairly straightforward. We're going to sing another hymn.
I want to say something, though, before we do. When I first began ministry and I started doing funeral services, I'll be curious if some colleagues or those of you who are celebrants have the same experience. I began thinking about what songs and hymns I would like them to sing at my funeral. I had my favorites. And the two I chose out of the American UU hymnal also happened to be in the British hymnals. I've always considered also a real shame that we don't get to participate in our own memorial services. People say the most glorious things, stuff you never hear during your life. They sort of pass gently over the bad bits and they lift up stuff that you never knew. So you're going to help me cheat death and enjoy a little pre-funeral excitement today by rehearsing with me two of my favorite hymns before I die. I thank you for your complicity. The first hymn is Song of Peace, sung to Sibelius' famous tune, Finlandia. It's actually a funny hymn to sing at a funeral. It's about peace between nations, which doesn't seem like the average person's memorial service theme, but it's also a plaintive searching tune. And it asks the age-old question, why keep fighting when we share so much in common, which isn't just about countries and nations. It's number 226 in your green hymnal, 226. mentioned earlier, this next part of my talk takes us to a very different place than where we have just been. As I thought about this week, I started wondering about our past as Unitarians and as Unitarian Universalists, what we have brought along and what we've left behind in our thoughts and feelings about death and the meanings we make from it. 
We are so open to the new as Unitarians, at least theologically, that it sometimes feels that we are at the real risk of forgetting things we ought not to forget. Things we once knew really well, even those ideas or practices we end up discarding as being less useful or more harmful in the present. Maybe especially if we've discarded it because there is wisdom in remembering not only that we don't believe in hell anymore, but why we don't believe in it and what price we paid when once we did. Otherwise, we may just end up fashioning another kind of orthodoxy of today where we go around saying something without knowing why we say it. To that end, I started looking around for Puritan views of death and mortality and quickly struck Unitarian theme talk gold in the work of the early Anglo-American poet Anne Bradstreet. Anne Bradstreet, for those unfamiliar with her work, and really, are there many of us who stay up at night reading Puritan poetry anymore? <laughs> Did the Puritans even, I wonder? Anyway, Anne Bradstreet was one of the very first English colonists in North America. Born Anne Dudley to a wealthy and well-connected 17th century family in Lincolnshire, she was among the first wave of English Puritans to leave their homeland during the long and difficult years in the run-up to the English Civil War. So it was that in the summer of 1630, she and her new husband embarked on the nearly three-month journey across the Atlantic as part of the 11-ship Winthrop fleet, the first really large group of permanent settlers in New England just after the Pilgrims. Anne was also an accomplished poet, about which I will say more in a moment. Now, the reason I decided to bring Bradstreet up in this theme talk is that she wrote a lot about death. Or rather, she wrote a lot about death and everything that surrounds death, including the frailty of the human body and God's hand in everything that happens to us, including our end. For the Puritans, God was involved down to the smallest detail in everything that we do. So check out the sampling of poem titles from Anne's middle and later years in the newly formed Massachusetts Bay Colony. Upon my daughter, Hannah Wigan, her recovery from a dangerous fever. For the restoration of my dear husband from a burning egg, June 1661. For deliverance from a fever. Upon a fit of sickness. Verses upon the burning of our house, July 18, 1666, upon some distemper of body, and one of my real favorites, deliverance from another sore fit. From that short list, and believe it or not, I left out several in the same vein, and could seem like the hypochondriac member of the Adams family. <laughs> And there is some truth in that. She was, after all, a Puritan, one eye always fixed on a distant vision, a final release from this sorrowful, difficult, sinful world. But she was also far more than that. She raised six children with her beloved husband, about and to whom she wrote heartfelt, even physically passionate poetry, not exactly how we imagine Puritan women. 
Anne was highly educated by any standard, but especially at that time when most girls had no schooling at all, tutored in literature, history, and several foreign languages. Depending on which account you read, she possessed a library of either 800 or 8,000 books. I'm guessing closer to 800. By the end of her life, one of which she wrote called The Fourth Muse. The Fourth Muse was the first published book in English by an American colonist. It was published back in London. And she wrote with courage and pluck about the rights and dignity of women, so much so that some have called her the first American feminist. There is much more than first meets the eye about Anne Bradstreet, and we would be wrong to read her as just another overly pious, even maudlin 17th century Puritan. Her poems also connect us with our own past as Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists, because of course it's from the descendants of those first English colonists to New England that the roots of rational descent and of a more human view of Jesus <coughs> and a more nuanced view of the scripture first took hold. In fact, where I did my internship, uh, Old Ship Church in Hingham, Massachusetts, is an original Puritan church from 1683. And of course, some among those who stayed in Great Britain moved away from Calvinism to ask other kinds of questions. And out of such questions, congregations in places like the Old Chapel here in Ucklow were born. Bradstreet also connects us to feelings and impressions about dying and death. For one thing, it hasn't been that long ago since death didn't occupy the room next door. You never knew when it would come knocking. You don't have to go back as far as the 17th century to understand that death was not an experience reserved for the very aged or the extremely ill. A little bit like in the story of the duck and the tulip, death walked close behind nearly everyone until, what, my grandparents' generation, maybe? And like nearly everyone before us, had to find a way to make sense of this fact. Death could drop by any time. The way she did it, or one way, was to write poems. I'd like to share two with you fairly representative of a type. I think they ground us in our theological and physical past, though I should add that as poems about the death of children, again, a very common occurrence. They may not be as far removed from some of us as from others. And I just want to name that, to honor the fact that what for me feels more like a historical moment in time for one of you might be all too real. The Buddha said to have told his followers as he lay dying under a tree from food poisoning, do not look away, for this is you too. Do not look away. I include these poems because they are raw and help us think about not only the what of death, but also the why. The first poem is him in memory of my dear grandchild, Elizabeth Bradstreet, who deceased August 1665, being a year and a half old. Farewell, dear babe, my heart's too much content. Farewell, sweet babe, the pleasure of mine eye. Farewell, fair flower that for a space was lent, then ta'en away unto eternity. 
Blessed babe, why should I once bewail thy fate, or sigh thy days so soon were terminate, sith thou art settled in an everlasting state? By nature, trees do rot when they are grown, and plums and apples thoroughly ripe do fall, and corn and grass are in their season mown, and time brings down what is both strong and tall. But plants new set to be eradicate, and buds new blown to have so short a date, is by his hand alone that guides nature and fate. The second poem on my dear grandchild again, Simon Bradstreet, who died on 16th November 1669, being but a month and one day old. No sooner come but gone and fallen asleep. Acquaintance short yet parting caused us weep. Three flowers, too scarcely blown, the last in the bud, cropped by the Almighty's hand. Yet is he good? With dreadful awe before him, let's be mute. Such was his will, but why? Let's not dispute. With humble hearts and mouths put in the dust, let's say he's merciful as well as just. He will return and make up all our losses and smile again after our bitter crosses. Go, pretty babe, go rest with sisters twain. Among the blessed and endless joys remain. I have not lost a child. But one doesn't have to, to sense the nearly overwhelming sorrow and the awful, unanswerable question why that is left to those who have. Our theological ancestors professed obedience to an all-powerful, distant, and ultimately inscrutable God, one who sa separated the saved from the damned before even a baby was born. With dreadful awe before him, let's be mute. Such was his will, but why, let's not dispute. With humble hearts and mouths put in the dust, let's say he's merciful as well as just. What terrible obedience. What a kind of twisting of real feeling to go from absolute desolation to affirming that the God who ordained your grandchild's death is merciful as well as just. Yet there was also consolation in the face of so many losses, in the hope for everlasting life through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It was an uncertain hope at best for those Puritans, as it couldn't be earned and only a select few would in fact be chosen. But we hear Anne searching for it, somehow still hopeful, still willing herself to believe. Most of us, in this room, maybe all of us, I expect, feel at an impossible remove from this way of thinking. We seem to have progressed far beyond the need or the desire for substitutionary atonement or the wrath of an angry God. Still, some are fated to be equally touched, though not with the same frequency as our ancestors were with the dilemma that Anne faced. The exact same why. Why this baby? 
Why this bereavement? Why this cross to bear when God controls it all and could take it away? It's the same question, if a different time. Who controls our struggles, our deepest pain? I was very touched by Jane and Helen's inclusion of their own struggles with depression and anxiety in their theme talks, not only because I thought it offered some additional insight about how best we might lead our lives through good times and through very difficult ones, but also because I could relate. I too have struggled with clinical depression since my early 20s, and that struggle has both deepened and scarred me. It's not an easy thing to speak about still, and maybe even more so as a minister, when you feel the need to inspire confidence in your congregants, giving permission for you to care for them and not have them worry about you. And this is partly true. But I don't need to tell all of you in this room that there remains an awkward silence around depression and other mental illness on both sides of the pond. Interestingly, it seems similar to me to the silence that also still exists around the pain of having a miscarriage, the grief that can remain for years and years from terminated pregnancies that perhaps you've never once talked about or failed fertility treatments. Two poems thrown into the breach, an old-fashioned rickety bridge between our past and now, reminding us of the God who winnows wheat from chaff, all-knowing, all-powerful, fairly terrifying, to an amorphous spirit, maybe, that flows between and among us. And still children die well before their time, and depressions lengthen and linger, and we wrestle just like Anne did with how to keep living in the midst of loss or sorrow. Shall we pause for a breath? I'd like us to sing an early Quaker hymn that harkens back to that time, those early dissenting years when to be a heretic, to make your own choice about faith was more than a decision about what to do on a Sunday morning. It's number 133 in your green hymnal, How Can I Keep From Singing? I'm going to give you permission to sit and sing this song, if that's all right. Uh, Yeah, we might need to share green books if you can't.
to leave you there, just there, on that funny old bridge between the past and present. I had hoped in my pride and with some caring too that I might leave you with something to live for, rather to live from, just a little something. I have two small somethings to give then here at the end. One is from that fantastic book I mentioned earlier advice for future corpses and those who love them. Sally Tisdale is a palliative care nurse of 30 years and a very serious Buddhist practitioner and a lovely writer. And she speaks in this book not only about the deep thinking we all should do about the simple fact of our mortality, but also lots of interesting advice, actually, from years of experience including what to say and what not to say to someone who is dying. That goes on for about three pages. Various ways people commonly grieve and why and not to be surprised by some stranger ones. How to wash a body after death in preparation for burial and why that is far more important than many of us might know. And also in our thinking about what we want 
to do with that body, to maybe think beyond the common coffin burial or even cremation, which she reminds us is actually environmentally very unwise. It releases toxins in the air and takes a huge amount of energy. I did not know that. Natural or wild burial, there are parts of cemeteries now set aside for that, or even composting is being tried, believe it or not. You can be composted in eight to nine months in Seattle, it turns out. Here is what she says about the fear we all have of dying and some advice on how we might deal with it. I'm not afraid of dying, she writes. That is, I don't feel afraid to be a dying person, weak, sick. Sometimes I'm even curious. But my curiosity is the calm sitting by the fire kind. I do so want to keep on living and living and living. I can imagine being a dying person, but I still find it hard to believe that someday I will be dead. Do you hear that difference? A dying person and just gone. You, yes, you will die. (laughs) But I, well, I don't really believe that. Such hubris. But how can we let go of our lives? It's impossible that you will leave me, and even more impossible, that I won't exist. We walk around with a blinkered, partial denial of death. Yes, we will die, but not now, not here. This dissonance is strong and strange to absolutely know this will happen. And against all evidence to the contrary, to absolutely not know. Against all evidence to the contrary, to absolutely not know. It's so hard to believe when the Buddha's own death was imminent, his closest followers, deeply schooled in impermanence, in letting go, wept and flung themselves on the ground and cried in lament, too soon. This, by the way, I find strangely consoling. Even those wise monks lose their poop. It makes me like them more. (laughs) Acceptance is found, she continues, by wholly inhabiting our denial. (laughs) Contemplating death is really contemplating resistance, and for a long time. How do we get ready to die? We start with not being ready at all. We start with the fact that we are afraid. A long lonesome examination of our fear. We start by admitting we are all future corpses pretending we don't know. So this is part one of the last gift on this last day of summer school. Most of us are afraid to die. I am afraid to die. I really don't want to go, not now, maybe not ever. Because I have to ask myself, is this it? This is not at all how I'd imagined. And frankly, I thought I would be able to do much better. I need more time. 
maybe you have thought that to yourself too. So assuming that there's some truth in what I've just said, maybe we could all take a quiet moment to close our eyes if that works for us. So we can really say it to ourselves, something so simple, so obvious. This first step towards acceptance, silently in our minds, I'm not sure I want to die. I really don't want to die. Say that to yourself, if you will. She's the expert. So I take her at her word. The strange gifts of summer school Twin beds and shared bathrooms, funny activities, even a touch of illness. And now this, I don't want to die. And we paid for this, some of you are thinking. (laughs) All I I can say is my very down-to-earth mother-in-law used to say to my kids when they didn't like a particular outcome, you get what you get. And maybe it will prove to be a gift in the end after all. To bring all this full circle, or at least halfway around, I'd like to tell you a personal story. A story that harkens back to an earlier summer school here in 2013, my first summer school, and the funny gift that death brought me then. And then just to make sure I had been paying attention that first time, brought again to me this week. Some of you, including those in my engagement group, have heard some or all of this, but it just seemed right to me to bring it to the entire group. At my first summer school in 2013, our small group leaders, Sheena and Stephen, gave us a lump of clay one morning and said, make something. I'm sure they said it nicer than that. (laughs) Was surrounded by beautiful music and meditative thinking. So we, we got to it. I started shaping totally unclear as what I would do with this lump of brownish orange clay, hoping, kind of against hope, it would speak to me. But I kept at it and they had that soothing music they do in the background. And then my brother emerged. My brother, Charlie, who had died only three months earlier at the age of 42. The brother we called our family ghost because he lived that long, but had spent all but one and a half of those years, the first one and a half of his years, in a wheelchair, blind, mute, severely retarded, as we used to say back then, and unable to move. He had gone into the hospital at age one and a half, a seemingly normal child, though with a worrying swelling on his brain because of some fluid there. So they went to put in a shunt to help drain that fluid so he would be fine. And there he caught spinal meningitis in the hospital. He nearly didn't make it, but he did survive, though changed forever. 
we had him at our house until I was about eight or nine, and it became too much for my mother to actually physically pick him up. And it would have been her life, just Charlie, taking care of him with two other children. So we went to a group home, and we visited and tried to connect, but how do you connect with someone who cannot see you, cannot talk to you, who doesn't seem able to understand who you even are? That day in summer school, I made a big egg out of clay, an egg about the size of my fist, and it had a crack in it, as I recall, and somehow there was a part of Charlie through that crack. And I took that egg out, and I went to put it on holy ground behind the chapel, under a bush, as I recalled it, tucked away a kind of protected space, for a time anyway, by a scrubby Derbyshire shrub. And I said goodbye to Charlie for the second time in three months. After three years away, moving back to the States, leaving my ministry and my friends here, I am invited back, and so I came. Honored to be asked to share with you some thoughts about death and dying and mortality, such that I know, and how we might still live what life we have without quite so much fear, maybe, maybe a bit more acceptance and peace when we leave. And I hadn't thought about Charlie at all, to be honest, not one moment. Too many other things had crowded that thought from the mind, I guess, until my engagement group. The second morning we gathered, Claire and Mark gave each of us a small stone and a teaspoon and a plastic sandwich bag. It seemed a kind of regular enough spiritual retreat exercise. (laughs) Go outside, they said. Bury the stone somewhere. Feel the stone. They didn't actually say that. Uh, And bring some dirt back with you that we will be using on our last day. Fine, I remember thinking as I got the stone, there's always a stone at these events. (laughs) I can do that. There was something about crossing and dwelling we were supposed to think about while we buried it, but I don't recall what that was because suddenly I remembered in that moment the clay egg, my Charlie egg from six years earlier. I'm not sure I had thought of it even once since 2013 but it came to me all in a rush. You can go bury the stone, the stone from death and dying weak, from mortality and the life left to us weak, to our sorrows and the holdings on and the lettings go weak. You can bury it where you left Charlie. I didn't really expect that anything would remain from that unfired clay egg and I was right, no miracle. In fact, the bush wasn't even where I'd remembered it to be. So I had to go looking for another bush, which I suspect wasn't the right bush at all. But I looked all the same. I pulled things apart and I avoided the nettles. No egg, not even a brownish smear on the ground. I thought I might find that. But no matter. There were gravestones all around me and a bush. And the memory of placing my sad little brother's memorial marker somewhere there. And for the life of me, I can't tell you why it matters. I have the earth in a sandwich baggie from the wrong bush, but the right place. And I plan on sneaking it through customs to scatter in my own garden. 
a kind of living cremains, I guess, without bone. But there is one other thing, something a little more woo-woo in a good way than just the serendipity of that stone ritual and the chapel grounds and my brother Charlie's too early death in life. After I buried that stone, told the story to my engagement group, it was time for lunch. Both and, right, Jane? The sacred and the profane, Chips and Charlie. Another member of my original engagement group from 2013, who of course I hadn't recalled had been an original member because I have a terrible memory, was standing behind me. We talked about how our groups were going that week, and then she said, I am not kidding. Remember the engagement group we were in? Was it back in 2013? Her voice lowered. Wasn't that when your brother had died and you made the egg? Strange gifts from summer school. Unexpected ones. It meant a lot to me that that had been remembered and said just at that time. It was a gift. What I can give you as a gift now, a second one, is pay attention as much as you can. It's not what you imagined, maybe, but there are hidden treasures and unexpected meetings, passing moments. I think we call them grace, don't we? That's the word for it, really, grace. What a privilege for all of us to have had this time outside of time, to sit on the park bench for a while with death right there against us, touching the black robe, hoping the large scythe doesn't come too close while we sit together in silence, looking across at the trees and the rose beds, at the clipped lawn, people we don't know walking by. We, we may not be in a rush to head off to that unknown land beyond life. I know I'm not. But sitting together like this isn't quite as scary or awful as sometimes it seems. The devil is in the details, as they say, which is also an interesting metaphor given the topic. But then I saw this quote by Lao Tzu, life and death are one thread, just one thread the same line viewed from different sides. Now, I'm not quite sure what he means exactly, but I do know that a thread isn't at all scary. <clears throat> and maybe the fact that one day, perhaps sooner even than I know, I and you and all those we know and love will move from this room to the next one. And it isn't perhaps as unknown or lonely as we might imagine. Amen. We're a little bit over. Can we just have one last closing hymn? Is there time for that? Yep. Uh, this is the handout for all that is our life.
the two wings that bear the good person to heaven and by Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore to send us out this day and into the world peace my heart let the time for the parting be sweet let it not be a death but completeness let love melt into memory and pain into song Let the flight through the sky end in the folding of the wings over the nest. Let the last touch of your hands be gentle like the flower of the night. Stand still, O beautiful end, for a moment, and say your last words in silence. I bow to you and hold up my lamp to light you on your way. Amen.